this yeah. is hell. Okay. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. If you think about the filing cabinet at all, and you likely do not, then you might think of it as a thing of the past, an antiquated piece of furniture that no longer serves a function that has become completely obsolete. But while the fa- fi- while the filing cabinet while the filing cabinet may be a dinosaur, it is yet to go the way of the dinosaur into extinction. As our guest today points out, if you work for the federal government and you want to get paid in retirement, somebody 240 feet underground in Pennsylvania has to process your paperwork by hand, finding it in one of 28,000 file cabinets housed in a former limestone mine. In 2012, the weight of file cabinets and paperwork threatened the structural integrity of a Veterans Benefits Administration office building in North Carolina. Of course, with digitization, the storage and retrieval of information is now different, but you would be surprised how little has actually changed from the filing cabinet's century-plus dominance of how we manage and organize our information, information the very definition of which was altered with the emergence of the filing cabinet. Suddenly, information was separated from knowledge, information that had been ground down to a simple truth that was above criticism and any analysis. This information could then be plucked from the folder in the filing cabinet when needed and plugged into whatever problem was as needed to be solved. This separated information, something to be pulled from filing cabinets, from knowledge, the actual understanding of what all these pieces of information meant. The disconnect facilitated by the filing cabinet enforced a gendered workplace with women doing menial and manual filing, while men did the mental work of deciphering knowledge. Beyond that, as our guest argues, the filing cabinet was a major contributor to the gendered, raced, and classed understanding of efficiency becoming pervasive. And sadly, that gendered, raced, and classed understanding of efficiency is still pervasive today as the filing cabinet, in many ways, now sits on our computer desktop contributing to capitalism in many of the same ways it did in the late 19th century. In a few minutes, we'll take a very deep dive into the filing cabinet and its lingering impact on the workplace and society when we speak with media studies scholar Craig Robertson, author of The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. Craig is Associate Professor of Media Studies at Northeastern University. Craig is also author of the 2012 book, The Passport in America, The History of a Document. Follow Craig on Twitter at Craig then the number two Robertson that's Craig to Robertson it's Tuesday which means producing today is Alex Jerry Alex what's new by you uh, trying to remember that it's Egon Sheely Egon Sheely yeah I've always heard it is Egon Sheely is it Egon or Egon I don't know Egon. My parents came from Germany, and I got two mispronounced German names. <laughs> it's like going to, when the bus used to stop at G O E T H E Street on uh, when it was the Clark bus stopping on that street down in uh, what is it, Gold Coast. The uh, a driver used to say when they were allowed to speak in the comp- in the uh, announcements, they would say Goth, Gothy, Gerta, Goth, Gothy, Gerta. It was just great. I loved how they gave all three pronunciations. When were bus drivers allowed to speak? No, like up until the early 2000s. Oh, man, it was so great. Oh, man, on the train, when you got on the, when they had the A and B trains, when you get on the certain B train, there was this guy who would say, he'd get on the speaker system, he'd go, welcome to the love train. 
It oh, was so great. I, was, I remember a red line train driver would have that, the blessed train. Oh, uh, I don't remember and, that. Uh, he would high five people up and down the platform when he was pulling in. It ruled. Oh, that's very cool. I, uh, the guy who did the love train, he would also say when we pulled into, uh, when you pulled into the Wilson stop, he would say, welcome to the Frank Lloyd Wright Wilson stop. There was nothing Frank Lloyd Wright left about it. It was totally covered up. All the detail was covered up by a Popeyes, but whatever. You know what I've been up to? I've been up to about 11.30 every night, if not midnight. And then after a fitful night of tossing and turning and apparently waking up my girlfriend, I've been wide awake before 5.30 every freaking morning, unable to go back to sleep no matter how hard I try. And when you are trying to sleep, you're likely not going to succeed at sleeping. On top of that, with many of my friends and family now fully vaccinated and inoculated, most having already gone the two or three weeks past their second dose, we're now getting back together with other people outside our two-person, two-cat pod. So not only can I sleep, but when I finally get the chance to socialize, I have all sorts of anxieties, and I'm pretty certain I've forgotten how to actually converse with others, mingle, small talk, the whole thing. Instead, I find myself suddenly describing how I try to keep myself sane during lockdown, and in the midst of that explanation, it, I realize it sounds completely insane. So lack of sleep, completely lost my ability to socialize, which means I'm really, really not looking forward to next weekend when I visit family in an area that currently is prohibiting non-essential travel. I gotta get out of that. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This week's question from hell is... What secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, D-E-V-O-N, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And as we mentioned yesterday, we got an email last week from Martin here in Chicago who told us that he was having a little trouble wrapping my head around the idea of completely abolishing prisons, which he we had discussed with St. Louis City Assistant Public Defender Adolfo Minka. And you should go back and listen to that conversation because Adolfo, what, what Adolfo said about capitalism and incarceration was not only eye-opening, but mind-expanding. But Martin asked if we got rid of capitalism, wouldn't there still be violent crime? Wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society? We didn't have an answer for Martin, but we knew you would, our listening audience, and sure enough, listener Valerie wrote, answering Martin's questions, if we got rid of uh, capitalism, wouldn't there still be violent crime? Wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society? Valerie replies, Yes and yes. But she also asks, my question to you then is, have violent crimes lessened under capitalism? Valerie also asks to a greater extent, what has prison done to stop violent crime? And she asked that we consider the role prison actually plays in creating more violent crime, even indoctrinating violent criminals into a life of violent crime. Sure, Valerie understands with prisons the only positive thing that occurs is that people in abusive and terrifying situations get a break 
from being around their abuser. But Valerie adds that going through trials and the effort it takes to press charges is a traumatizing process in itself. After a traumatizing event, often people decide that it's just not worth going through that. And to me, it all comes back to a matter of justice. Is justice anything more than removing a dangerous person from a horrifying situation, locking them up and giving them a timeout from society? So we got a follow-up from Martin who writes, I was listening to last week's episode where you talked to Daniela Ochoa Bravo about what happens to prisoners during climate crises. While I don't know if I can go all the way to supporting prison abolition like she does, I support the idea of treating prisoners humanely. The problem is that in this culture, we are brought up to believe that if you, quote, do something wrong, you are deserving of whatever punishment or lack of care you get or worse. I've yet to hear your show tackle this topic head on. Correct me if I'm wrong. I would really like for you to bring on someone who could discuss the practical ways we could start down that path. Nothing is going to change until we develop a completely different relationship to the concept of punishment. Just my two cents, Martin in Chicago. And Martin, I agree with uh, that. I agree with Martin that nothing will actually change until we develop a completely different relationship to the concept of punishment. But I would take it one step further, as sociologist Sarah Beth Kaufman did on our show back in June of last year, June of 2020. Sarah Beth is author of American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. And Martin, while this might not directly address your questions, I think it's an interview that will give you a really great context for how we can look at prison abolition. In her book, she argues that what underpins our justice system, especially when it comes to capital punishment, is a system that views vengeance as justice. Until we get past that idea that punishment fueled by vengeance is justice, nothing is going to change and we will not move forward or toward prison abolition. That's where many of the concepts of restorative justice comes in. For instance, victims, offenders, and community members working together to repair the harm caused by the actual crime. The sole focus in our current justice system seems to be on punishing the victim as if that will fix the harm that was done to the victim, as if vengeance alleviates harm and is not merely another harmful practice itself, which very may well be perpetuating an unjust system of justice that has been turned into a system of vengeance. Restorative justice is about collaboration and reintegration instead of our current prison system, which is about nothing more than coercion and isolation. And coercion and isolation are not good for anybody's ability to contribute to society and to be a good neighbor. More importantly, it's about realizing there are consequences for our actions and taking responsibility and holding those responsible for their actions. Which brings us to yesterday's conversation with civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, The USA, Immoral, Illegal, Irredeemable, and Irrelevant to Global Africa's Liberation Struggle. Mark writes of ongoing systemic racism, the great mass of Americans are merely representatives of average humanity. They muddle along with their own affairs and scarcely can be expected to take seriously the affairs of strangers or people whom they partly fear and partly despise. So I asked Mark if that's the normal we're being told by the media and government that we all want to get back to, supposedly. And he agreed that it is, and the normal is a normal of not considering the consequences of our actions, just like those we judge worthy of incarceration, an incarceration that can be literally maddening. Which means Martin and Valerie and everybody else may be the key to prison abolition and a truly just system of justice 
is both taking vengeance out of justice while society as a whole starts realizing that their actions do have consequences and they should not only be held responsible by society, but we should all hold ourselves accountable for what we've done and what we continue to do to be complicit in our unjust system of justice. If we go back to the normal of actions not having consequences and believing vengeance is justice, in no time at all we'll find ourselves back in lockdown, fearing to go outdoors again because of a globalized virus, a police crackdown, and a burning planet. You can send your comments or on the show, guest or topic suggestions, or anything you'd want. Even responses to Martin's continuing questions about prison abolition. To Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, you can DM them to us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio. You can message us via Facebook Messenger at Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. Or you can just send us stuff in the mail if you want to. This is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, the inanimate filing cabinet and how it has animated our lives under capitalism. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of the ways that you can support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. The filing cabinet for over a century stood for the power of information and knowledge. Its categorizations and classifications rendered information accessible to burgeoning late 19th century capitalism. Now in the 21st century, the filing cabinet's legacy can be seen through the ways in which we store and retrieve information for better or worse. Here to help us better understand the cutting edge late 19th century technology that is the filing cabinet and its impact that we feel today, still feel today, media studies scholar Craig Robertson is author of The Filing Cabinet, a vertical history of information. Welcome to This Is Hell, Craig. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. You know, one of the things I kept thinking about when just like at the very beginning of your book, when you're talking about the just the presence of a filing cabinet in an office is we don't think of that in the same way that we think of a computer. We think of the computer as a completely revolutionary machine that utterly changed society. Did the filing cabinet have that much of an impact on society? And if it did, was it viewed as something that, like the computer, that was utterly changing society and people were actually concerned about it? Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say you could argue the filing cabinet changed society in the way that some people argue the invention of the computer did. But that being said, I think we need to really think about what the filing cabinet did that no other paper or information storage technology had done prior to that moment. And that was it allowed paper to stand on its edge, right? Because I'm sure, you know, if listeners want to go try now, if you hold up a piece of paper, a loose piece of paper, it won't stand up. And what the filing cabinet did, right, was it provided the support to allow loose paper to stand on its edge. And as you um, already suggested, what that meant was it allowed people to access easily unbound paper and unbound paper came to be or take on the associations that people were giving to this other, this new concept called um, information. So how was it not 
information when it was still in a book, bound on a page, instead of being a sheet of paper in a file? That's a great question. Um, and it's a good question, too, because it forces me to sort of, you know, maybe um, rein myself in a little bit in terms of my argument. Filing cabinet invented this idea of information. But what it, the filing cabinet did through manila folders and loose paper is it gave like a, a physical presence to the idea of information as this discrete object. Now, in the 19th century, um, and even going back further, you had the idea of something that wasn't always called information, but something that was discrete and separate in, in a tabular form, like in a table on a, on a piece of paper. So in that sense, you had information broken down, right, often numerically in terms of data and statistics. So it, was, it existed on a page, on a bound page, as something discrete. But what the filing cabinet did was, is it gave that sense of information, that discreteness, um, a material presence in the world. So, so information could literally become something at your fingertips. So did that, when you take that information from the page and you put it onto a sheet, does that strip any of the context from that page when it gets onto that sheet? Yeah, I th that's a really good question and a really important point. Yes, that's what it does, right? So um, it creates this idea of information as being something that that is um, transparent and understandable on its own without context. Um, so, you know, when you used to store correspondence in bound volumes, it existed, you know, and maybe it was the volume for the year 1885. So that letter existed within the context of um, the, um, of the year's business next to things that were happening around it. But now it becomes this discrete thing that is connected to all the similar correspondence, the correspondence with the same customer, for example, um, that occurs over a period of time. So yeah, it allows information to take on this notion of, of transparency, of objectivity, if you like, of like facticity. And you write that the filing cabinet was critical to the infrastructure of 20th century government and capitalism. It shares with most infrastructure the fact that embedded as it is in everyday practice, it is rarely considered worthy of comment and the labor associated with it is minimized or ignored. So a filing cabinet is harmless or is it? Can filing cabinets be I don't weaponized, if you will, against the public and its privacy? <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, in the sense that we're assuming here or what we've assumed, right, is the filing cabinet stores paper, but what it really does is it stores information because through the 20th century, paper is where information um, was recorded. Um, it was where information was recorded so it could be stored and so it could be circulated. So yeah, in that sense, um, the filing cabinet has the potential as government and capitalism collect more and more information about individuals through the 20th century, the filing cabinet can come to capture the sort of fear of, if you like, surveillance or the collection of information about individuals. And I think I know, if I'm correct, right, that you're a fan of the movie Brazil, right? So obviously Brazil, you know, with those scenes of the, of the, um, of the office workers' choreographed movements running between corridors of filing cabinets, you know, capture that notion of the filing cabinet standing in, right, for the collection of information. 
And in Brazil, he kind of figures out the big picture later on, except that for all this atomized information is being circulated around him. And you write, as the response to the problem of sharing paper and information, the filing cabinet emphasizes distinctive material accordances and economic and cultural priorities. These include efficiency, exploitation of gendered labor, anxiety over information loss, and what you call granular certainty, this drive to break more and more of life and its everyday routines into discrete observable and manageable parts. Does the information in filing cabinets to any degree obscure systems, links, and connections between different subjects? Does it atomize subjects to the point that their relationship with each other is unrecognizable? Um, well, yeah, that, there's, a, there's a couple of points in there. So, um, yes, I think it does, right? And that becomes the critique when um, the filing cabinet, um, or sorry, when computers developed in the 1960s and 1970s and you have the idea initially of the desktop metaphor which is used by um by by people as personal computers are developed in the 1970s and then apple of course makes it it much more visible um, on computer screens putting icons on those screens and there have been many people over the years who've criticized that idea, that atomization that the file creates. Um, and, and one of the most sort of sort of famous, succinct critiques of that comes from Ted Nelson, who was criti critically involved in the development of hypertext in the 1960s and 1970s. And, you know, Ted Nelson argues, right, that to use the metaphors of paper, to use the metaphors of files, when we start to think about digital technology, is like tearing the wings off a 747 and driving it as a bus on the highway, right? And, and part of that is because the file, the notion of the file makes these things separate and discrete. And as you point out for Nelson, the compartmentalization of files suggests that there is no overlap between the things people do. In contrast, computers should be able to capture the reality of the overlaps. The affordances of paper should not restrict the possibilities of computers. What do we miss in the understanding of the information we've stored when we do not recognize these overlaps? All right, yeah. So, so what happens, and this actually goes back to the first part of your previous question, right? What What's going on here is that in that discreteness, like that discreteness, what I refer to as granular certainty, locates the collection of this information within a particular understanding of the world. And this is where I'm, you know, suggesting or arguing, right, that the filing cabinet is very much a product of early 20th century capitalism, right? And in that sense, it's a product of a belief, right, that if you want to, a belief that we need to be productive, we need to be efficient. And to do that, we need to break things down into as small, as small, as small things as possible, right? And of course, this comes out of things like um, scientific management and Frederick Taylor, um, where that thing was labor. But here that thing is information. And so, yeah, you're breaking it down, right, to allow it to be managed in a particular way. So when that becomes your priority, that means, right, that's, that certain connections get lost, right, as we start to, as we're encouraged to think in terms of what I refer to um, as granular certainty. So is the point of information to separate those who collect it from those who interpret it? Is the filing cabinet, a, was it a creator of or enforcer of a new kind of hierarchy? 
Um, yeah, I think, yeah, we definitely, we could argue that. And it's a hierarchy in the sense that it's, it's coming out of this changing moment in um, capitalism, right? Where capitalism becomes or takes on a corporate form, right? And in taking on a corporate form, capitalism has to deal with a scale and a volume of information that it previously hadn't. And then we have these ideas of, again, coming back to efficiency and granular certainty. And so capitalism in this sense, and I, as I argue in the book, I think the filing cabinet emerges at this moment where I refer to the ver capitalism taking on a vertical bias, right? And that comes through in the idea of vertical integration, but also the emergence of management and the management hierarchy and the corporate ladder. And so what we have here is an association of, of organization and hierarchy. So organization becomes understood as hierarchical, right? And then that helps us, um, or that helps, I should say, um, the development of a particular understanding of the value of information, of an understanding of the value of information that is, you know, I've, I've said on numerous times already, um, is linked to the dominant values of capitalism and efficiency. And just to continue on that vertical thinking, your, the name of your book, again, is The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. What do you mean by vertical history? Yeah, so obviously, I mean, I'm trying to be a little clever, vertical filing cabinet and so forth. But really what I'm trying to get with that notion of the vertical is that notion of hierarchy and power. So therefore, to write a vertical history of information is to write a history of information that foregrounds power dynamics that doesn't understand information or the technology used to store it and circulate it as somehow neutral, right? So bringing to the sort of bringing to the center of the history of information or this particular moment in the history of information, the importance of capitalism, the importance of efficiency, and the importance of understandings of gender in particular in relationship to capitalism and efficiency. So were information and knowledge, were they seen as synonymous prior to the filing cabinet? Well, yeah, what I would argue is that, I mean, the word information exists long, long before the filing cabinet. Um, historically, it used to be, it was more of a verb, right? It was to be informed, to be educated. And then through the ninth through the 19th century, it starts to become a name for a thing, right? Something that can be possessed, obtained, received, circulated. And so it was used, but my argument is it was used somewhat loosely or interchangeably with knowledge. And then in the early 20th century, data arrives as a third term. But at least in the context of American capitalism, in the early 20th century, information starts to emerge as this something discrete and separate from knowledge and it becomes sort of an instrumental form of knowledge right as we talked about earlier that can exist and be circulated and without understood without context so it's in that early 20th century moment that i'm arguing that information becomes or, or takes on its own identity which is why i think this is a particularly interesting moment in the history of information like no one in the early 20th century is talking about being part of an information age or living in an information society. But what's happening and what the filing cabinet allows us to see in the early 20th century is 
how information develops as an idea that then later in the 20th century can come to label an age or a society. So how efficient did the filing cabinet make society? Because, you know, we're suffering from climate change caused by burning fossil fuels and a pandemic spread by globalization. So how efficient are or were filing cabinets? Or do we always look at the previous generation of information gathering and storage as wrong and obsolete? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's no denying that in its time when it emerges in the beginning. So the filing cabinets invented in the 1890s in the United States. And in the first decades of the 20th century, it's definitely understood to be a very efficient technology. Like it is understood to be a way in which you can easily access information um, I think, and I mentioned early in the book um, an anecdote about an um, early 20th century Secretary of State who asks for correspondence around a particular um, a particular issue that's occurring, and he gets like delivered half a dozen or so large bound volumes with these letters scattered through, and that's when he says, "No, you know, we've got to bring in some form of numerical filing or decimal filing and bring in." Um, a filing cabinet. So I think in its time, it was understood to be efficient, right? Um, and, you know, you, the cynic could argue that it's like, you know, the um, the idea of climate change, for example, the climate crisis is a product <laughs> of capitalism pushing itself, you know, to be more and more efficient, ignoring all non-economic values, right? Um, compartmentalizing in the way that you know, we've suggested the filing cabinet allows us to think. Did a desire for standardized efficiency create filing cabinets or did filing cabinets create a desire or need for standardized efficiency? Were filing cabinets something the public wanted or was it something that was imposed on them? Um, I, well, the filing cabinet, I think it's something that the business world wanted in the 1890s because the late eight, the late. 19th century has its own form of um, information overload, right? As I said earlier, you've got corporations developing, you've got businesses operating on a larger, large, uh, larger scale, producing more and more paper because you have carbon paper and typewriters being invented. So more and more loose paper is circulating. So there is this sort of demand, but even after it was invented in the early 1890s, it kind of lay dormant for another you know, six, seven, eight years. So there was an, uh, there was sort of a need for it um, to some extent in offices. And then when it arrived, it really was understood within the world of um, efficiency. And it was understood as something that could really help and benefit people. In terms of outside of the business world, as I argue in the book, the filing cabinet sort of comes, I would argue, into the home indirectly in the form of changes in storage in things like kitchen cabinets and closets, which take on the same kind of partition logic of the of the um, of the Manila folder and the tab, and giving giving everything its own particular place. And you were mentioning how it came back into the home in a certain way. I had this thought about design. You cite a filing cabinet patent reading, the flat file permits the use of but one hand, while with the vertical file, both hands are used, thus increasing speed. That is, papers filed vertically are accessible, compact, and sanitary. 
and you add advocates believe the last of those uh, characteristics was critical to the health of an efficient worker, and that being sanitary. Is there some sort of connection maybe between the sanitary filing cabinet and the sanitized design of offices where there are or were filing cabinets. When we see these images, granted, these are media-generated, entertainment-generated images. You see these dark, musty, old offices with tons of books on the wall. And then when you see the emergence of the filing cabinet, it seems like the workplace becomes sanitary. Was there an effect? uh, Did uh, filing cabinets have an effect on the design, overall design of the workplace? I would say they were part of a, of a rethinking of the office as a space, right? So the office is a space designed to organize people and objects. And so in that late 19th, early 20th century, you have an increased focus on work and labor. So, you know, the idea is that, the, you know, the, the, the filing cabinet is sanitary because you want your workers to be healthy because you want your workers to be productive. So it's not that you were genuinely interested in the health of your workers. You're generally interested in their productivity. So the filing cabinet emerges in this into as part of this rethinking of the office around efficiency. So therefore around this idea of cleanliness. And as you say, we see that in the catalogs, there's limited archival um, sources to help us really understand how clean offices were, but they definitely in promoting the filing cabinet and new flat top desks, they really wanted, and chairs, they really wanted to emphasize a contrast with this old, dusty, very masculine office. We are speaking with the author of The Filing Cabinet, a vertical history of information media studies scholar, Craig Robertson. He is associate professor of media studies at Northeastern University and is also the author of the 2012 work, The Passport in America, The History of a Document. You can follow Craig on Twitter at Craig, followed by the number 2 Robertson. That's Craig 2 Robertson, you write the office that a filing cabinet found itself in was a different space from its 19th century equivalent. The breakdown of the work of a general clerk into specialized tasks underwrote the change. The office equipment industry provided products to facilitate that specialization. Women operated this new office equipment with their work illustrating the gendered labor critical to the 20th century project of efficiency. Why was the gendered labor of women operating office equipment critical to efficiency in the 20th century? How dependent was efficiency on gendered labor? Well, efficiency was dependent on cheap labor. And so this is where women come in offering cheap labor. And the the assumption here is that you can get a, like the very sort of gendered heteronormative um, set of ideas here under, believes and understands that the man is the main breadwinner in the house. So the woman, if she's doing work, is either a daughter helping out the family um, or a wife helping out a husband, but they're never the main breadwinner, so they can be paid less. And then there is also the assumption that a woman, um, upon getting married, will leave, will stop working and go home to work unpaid um, to be um, a wife and a mother. And it's uncertain how there are in some businesses and some in, in some forms of business, um, there was what was referred to as a marriage bar where a woman was basically fired um, when she got married. But even if that wasn't that pervasive, what that did was it pushed women into work in where 
um, there was no hope of promotion or there was no possibility of promotion because you wouldn't invest your time training a woman if she was going to leave um, when she got married. So efficiency uh, really does depend on a very gendered notion and understanding of labor, um, particularly around the, what the cost and the cheapness of labor for labor of women's labor. And then that then gets linked to an idea that women um, are ideally suited for unskilled labor. And then women are ideally suited to be some form of quote unquote machine operator because um, of their nimble fingers and their sort of quote unquote natural dexterity. And that of course is how sort of the changes in the office brought, a, brought about by gendered understandings of efficiency are sort of naturalized um, through this understanding of women's um, innate natural dexterity. And you point out the, about the gender division of the modern office assigned to women to assist men. In contrast, men read the files doing work understood to require thought. The women were just doing the manual work. They wouldn't understand what the piece of information was, but they would under and what it meant in the bigger picture, but they would understand where that piece of information was and where they could get it when it was necessary to be retrieved and brought to a man for him to decipher the knowledge that comes from all these pieces of information. So how much did the filing cabinet contribute to women being viewed as intellectually inferior to men? I mean, I think it, it reinforces, I um, mean, obviously it's not a cause here, but it definitely reinforces that idea. And that idea is used to, to justify and structure the division of labor in the, in the office. And of course, there, there are situations where certain women circumvent that and, and can succeed and be promoted. But generally, um, the idea of office work really did, um, if you like, stabilize this idea that um, women were not suited to um, intellectual work. And, and this really comes through in the way in which filing cabinets are advertised. Um, I kept coming across these images of um, filing cabinets with their drawers open, right? Showcasing, showcasing the manila folders and the with tabs and the and the guides with tabs, which are all emphasizing the the discrete, precise information that can be found in a file drawer. And what they often showed were hands, disembodied hands, you know, showing how you would retrieve or find this information. And I found those ads very powerful, right? Because what they to me, in showing how you use the filing cabinet, they they also modeled the ideal relationship of, of um, technology and labor that we're talking about here, that the file cabinet did not require thought, right? You have the disembodied hands separated from the body, separated from the mind, because um, the filing cabinet is, in the language of advertising of the day, does all the thinking for you. Right. And so therefore, this becomes a job that is understood to be suited to a woman um, rather than a man. And not just a woman in the ad. It's there's one ad where it's not a woman who is working on the filing of a filing cabinet. It is a little girl. Meanwhile, in you know, similar ads, it's a tall sturdy, strong, erect man standing in a filing cabinet as if he has power over that filing cabinet. What does it say to you about the gendered labor division that was happening within the office at the time of the filing cabinet when the woman is infantilized and the man is made strong? Yeah, that, that's a great series of ads that comes from a, a, a 
Michigan-based company called Shaw Walker. And they had this ad campaign and they produced their office equipment under the slogan, built like a skyscraper. And so they have these ads where these drawings of these male, these, these male clerks in their suits are basically, you know, doing an exercise routine on a filing cabinet. And it's all about showing the strength of the filing cabinet, right? And so, as you say, you have this man jumping into a filing cabinet. You have this man almost doing some kind of pull-up on um, an open drawer of a filing cabinet. And then you have this little girl opening a filing cabinet um, with a thread of cotton to show how effective the drawer slides were. And to me, what's going on in that ad campaign is showing that there is, you know, this is the sort of early 1920s, that there's still some kind of um, sort of struggle, if you like, um, within within society, or at least within the world of business, about women coming into the office and what this means for the masculine space of the office, you know, which prior to the 19th, to the beginning of the 20th century had been a largely male space. So I think that kind of exercise routine is, is sort of suggesting or, or showing um, that, you know, that men or male clerks are still athletic, right? You know, they could still be working out in the fields and just because they're in the office doesn't make them weak. I mean, you could argue that I'm reading a little too much into that, but I, but I really think that that sort of uncertainty or that recognition that there's a change going on in terms of the office and what that means for the men who've always worked in the office, um, that's definitely going on um, in the world in which the filing cabinet is emerging. You also mentioned anthropologist Shannon Mattern's concept of intellectual furnishings and how Mattern uses the concept to connect the histories of technology such as bookshelves, desks, card catalogs, and server racks. And you then quote Mattern saying, I recognize these furnishings as much more than utilitarian equipment. Instead, they scaffold our media technologies in particular ways, inform the way human bodies relate to those media in particular ways, and embody knowledge in particular ways. They render complex intellectual and political ideas material and empirical. Does this filing work then reproduce a politics that is not necessarily recognizable as political, especially by the person doing the filing? Is this the reinforcement of a politics that, to some degree, is invisible to us? Is this complicity without recognition? Yeah, well, first of all, I would definitely um, support your shout-out to Shannon Matten's work. Um, She's done a lot of great work in this area. Um, The argument that I guess I'm trying to make here is that... um, one of the things that the, the filing cabinet does and the act of filing is it makes increasingly pervasive and common sense a lot of the values that um, come out of capitalism in the early 20th century. And these are particularly ideas about um, productivity. And also, I think we need to recognize that the beginning of the 20th century is the moment when saving time becomes a problem. Right. So you want to be able to save time. And I think that and again, I would another person whose work I would give a shout out here is um, Melissa Gregg, who um, wrote a book a few years ago called Counterproductive. And in that book, um, Gregg, making a sort of similar argument um, to, to Shannon Matten is, you know, wants us to think about how ideas of productivity emerged in the 20th century. And so my contribution to that argument is to say that 
not just intellectual furnishings, to use um, Matten's term, but closets and kitchen cabinets and putting recipes on index cards and putting them in, in boxes. All of these things helped, right, to sort of make common sense in every day, these distinct economic values, such that we don't really think about them as being ideological in a particular way, right? We just become, it's common sense to want to save time. There's the phrase that I'm sure you've heard, democracy stops at the workplace door. It says it stops at the schoolhouse door as well. Does democracy, democracy stop at the workshop door because, or I should say, how much does democracy stop at the workshop door because of filing cabinets? Oh, um, I think it stops at the it stops um, at at the workshop door or or the office door um, in some ways. Again, not because of the filing cabinet per se, but because of the values right within which the, the values that have created the filing cabinet right. Because I think in the background of all of this, just to be clear. Um, and I'm writing from a, a point of view where I believe that technology is not neutral, right? That technology of any sort is informed by power dynamics. Um, and in that sense, right, the issues that are prioritized as problems to be solved, and then the solutions that occur exist within sort of sets of dominant sets of social values and ideas. So in that sense, you know, the filing cabinet, you know, is very much part of the office, right? Um, and so I would, you know, that's how I would, to some extent, slightly modify what, um, that claim. And so I just want you to expand on that just a little bit. You uh, you write that you focus on the changes in storage practices at a critical moment in the history of information. This is important because storage is never a neutral practice. How can storage never be neutral and why is that important to recognize? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so... So to begin with, I would think of I think of storage as a label for a space of storing, right? Where you put something for future use, and so people make decisions about what to store and how to store it. And my argument here is that um, those decisions are not neutral; those decisions adhere to social values. And this becomes particularly critical when the object to be stored um, is knowledge, right? And so in this. And in making this argument, I'm sort of developing a point that um, the historian of technology, um, Lewis Mumford, made, um, where um, he goes all the way back to Neolithic times and the develop and the idea that we need to start storing grain. But he argues, you know, that um, there are sort of a range of concerns associated with storage, and this can be accumulation, enclosure, protection, continuity, and so storage is never neutral, right? Because in response to those, the way we respond to those concerns, the objects that we determine need to be protected, right, that we need to accumulate, um, those, right, are determined by um, dominant social values. So here, the argument with the filing cabinet is that it helps us understand how a particular conception of information becomes something that is understood to be really important to store and not only store, but to retrieve, right? So at this moment in the history of storage, um, what's going on in the office is that storage becomes a problem of retrieval and that links it to ideas of saving time and efficiency. So in that way, I would argue that um, storage is not neutral. 
And you point out that it is crucial, or sorry, critical, to note that the concepts people use in the 21st century to comprehend data and information originated in a particular moment in the history of capitalism, a moment that led to a gendered, raced, and classed understanding of efficiency becoming pervasive. So to what extent can we overcome racism, sexism, and classism by organizing our information in some other way than filing? Does filing inherently reinforce stereotypes and generalizations? Yeah, well, again, I, so so the the point I'm just I'm, the point I'm trying to make there is to think about to really underscore the fact that like something like the file, um, that idea is, is not neutral, right? It's not objective. It just doesn't exist in the world without meaning. Um, that it comes from um, out or comes out of a particular moment in time um, and brings and it it it, it came into existence and it became, if you like, pervasive or common sense because it spoke to um, a dominant set of ideas and a dominant set of values. Um, in terms of moving beyond the file right now, I mean, there, there are a lot of ways in which people are thinking beyond the file, but they are thinking in terms, I would argue, of efficiency and of productivity. So they're pivoting away from a particular instantiation of capitalism and and the values of capitalism to another form of it, right? To another version of it, right? And part of that is my argument that, you know, I do believe that information management and information storage um, speaks to, or the the way in which that is understood to be a problem throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century is driven by the needs of capitalism. And therefore all the sort of inequalities that we associate with capitalism. And you also write that a file cabinet's capacity embodies the facility of bureaucracies to produce paper, to delay, to always leave people in a state of want. As psychoanalyst and cultural historian Ben Kafka argues, bureaucracy performs an important role in the modern world as an explanation for why people cannot always get what they want. The integrity of a file cabinet, its metal construction, represents the impersonality of bureaucratic paperwork. So is the filing cabinet a way to not take personal responsibility or have any personal accountability for the cruelties of capitalism? Does the filing cabinet allow cruelty and uh, to exist and keep anyone from being held personally accountable? Well, yeah, the system of files that are associated with the filing cabinet definitely um, can be used to um, to to allow um, individuals to not to not be held accountable or not take account be, of their actions because the filing cabinet, what it's doing and what it represents is a system, right? And again, what made the filing cabinet innovative in the early 20th century was that it took, if you like, it created the idea of an organizational memory as um, the business historian Joanne Yates puts it, right? So that an organization can have a memory, not an individual. Um, and I think so that brings with it this notion of the impersonality Right, of bureaucracy. And I think the metal filing cabinet goes a long way to sort of capturing that impersonality of, um, of bureaucracy and of the system. Um, and so there are ways in which, you know, individuals working within that system or most obviously individuals trying to interact with that system, um, are, it is made clear to them that they are working and operating and interacting within um, a broader system. 
You write that the categories of information overload and information management take vastly different forms at different historical moments. At one time, the filing cabinet was the symbol of orderly information management. By the end of the 20th century, Google search had taken that mantle. However, although different, both the filing cabinet and the search engine became organizing principles for the capitalist management of information. What makes the organizing of information like this capitalist? Um, okay, yeah, so that's sort of, thanks for that question, because that allows me to follow up a little more on, on, on what I just said. And so um, the capitalist management of information is to use information or is to um, define information through the ideas of efficiency. And this gets us actually back to that idea of granular certainty that um, you brought up earlier in the interview. And so what, what I like about that concept of granular certainty is it makes two points, right? And one is that capitalism needs information, right? Capitalism needs information to enable productivity, right? But capitalism also needs a form of information that in and of itself can be efficient. And so what the filing cabinet does in the early 20th century is it takes this pre-existing idea of information as something discrete, um, information that might have existed, you know, on a table, on a, in a page, in a bound book. And it makes that idea, it takes that idea of information and it sort of envelops it in ideas of efficiency, right? The idea of breaking something down into small parts, right? To give you specificity with the idea that that greater specificity is going to reduce individual dis discretion and therefore it's going to um, increase the likelihood that a task will be completed efficiency, uh, efficiently. And so that idea of granular certainty is what I mean by, um, or is an example of, the capitalist management of information that I see connecting the filing cabinet and connecting something like Google search. So what would a non-capitalist management of information look like? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, um, I think it, it could be a way in to think about information, which may be going back to um, Ted Nelson's critique, um, a way in which we can really think about in the think about how different categories overlap and the association between different categories and not define things so precisely um, and rigidly in a way that really doesn't mimic how we think. I mean, we often use the metaphor of a brain being like a filing cabinet or a filing cabinet being a perfect brain, but really that's not how the mind works. And so in that sense, it would be, I would suggest it would be a form of, um, of, of understanding and thinking about information that doesn't privilege the discreteness that is necessary for um, efficiency. You know, so Craig, <laughs> the, the final question that we have for each one of our, this is not your, the final question, I'm just trying to explain something to you. The final question that we have for every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. The question from hell that I had for you, and I'm going to have to change it, is, is it possible for someone to not organize their thoughts like a filing cabinet? But now you're saying that's just not how we think. Because every time, I've had this conversation with people for, since I first went online, and the first time I 
was using a computer in the late 80s, early 90s, and saying how the way that we uh, group things in files is the same way as reinforcing our ideas of gen, uh, you know, generalizations and stereotypes and racism and sexism, because that's just how we organize our thoughts together, because we've been taught by filing cabinets. But you're saying that that's not how we think. So how, how do we think if we don't think in the way that filing cabinets organize our thoughts? Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, I think, again, we can think like filing cabinets because that's how we've been encouraged to think. You know, that's how we confront information and ideas um, when we open up our laptop. Um, And so I guess what I'm trying to sort of suggest here is that it's that rigid division, that that separation of ideas um, that um, and the encouragement to think in those discrete terms um, that maybe that. It dominates how we think, but we can think there are other possible ways to think, right? Where we can understand and more make ourselves more easily open to us not compartmentalizing things, to making associations between things that might appear discrete. And, you know, in some ways, this is not just cross the idea of cross-referencing that I'm talking about, but really trying to, yeah, to, I dare I say it, like, you know, think outside the box um, um, or think outside the cabinet. <laughs> we have been speaking with media stu- studies scholar Craig Robertson, author of The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. Craig is also author of the 2012 book, The Passport in America, The History of a Document. You can follow Craig on Twitter at Craig, then the number two, Robertson, Craig to Robertson on Twitter. As I was saying, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And now my question from hell isn't as good as that one. Thanks, Craig. So, you write the demise of the file cabinet is the demise of the monopoly of a particular way of organizing information that depended on the creation of a system into which information could be placed, the certainty that information had a proper place, and the confidence that such a place could be known in advance. So, was the filing cabinet the victim of arrogance? Um... It was the victim. <laughs> uh, it was the victim um, of a, the supreme confidence of um, you know white men who have a lot of money. That sounds about right. <laughs> That's always the answer. Right? That's always the answer. Exactly. Craig, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating book on a topic that other people have written on before, which I was unaware until I read your book. And it is really, really an interesting topic. So thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Chuck. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Take care, Craig. This is not the media. As you can tell, because we just talked for 50 minutes about a filing cabinet. This is hell. If you liked what you just heard, please show us how much by supporting completely listener supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, or by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. Uh, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? James S. says, hey, mustache. Gross. <laughs> this is a little too secret. I don't know about that one, James. Marco G. says, the secret falafel society. Ooh, sign me up. Mm. Uh, John T. says, the Jewel Osco online service. They want rights to all of your secrets. <laughs> Sean M. says, civil. What secret society are you trying to join? Wally R. says, the Belinda Carlisle group. <laughs> 
Martin F says, I'm already in a secret society called the Zionist Occupied Government. We're watching you, Chucky. Don't step out of line. <sighs> Benjamin C says, The Sneeches. Kim G says, Skull and Bones. Jeff C says, I ate the password club. And finally, Pete V says, The Gays. So, I don't know how secret that one is. It's not your mom. It's really yeah, surprising. Thanks for that. I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, someone's going to come through with that, Chuck. Don't, don't give him any ideas. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Alex, who's on tomorrow's live Wednesday one-hour show starting here at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com? Sociologist Spencer Hedworth is going to be on to talk about his book, Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism in Public Assistance. So that happiness to look forward to when I get home. And Thursday show? Uh, we're going to have uh, Sarah Amood, who wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jara, The Question Before Us. And did Jeff send a tease yet? Uh, no. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. In the production booth with Alex today is Egon Scheel. E. E. That's what I said, Egon. Sheely. Oh, Sheely. Oh, you can't just say Are E. You? There's so many E's in there. <laughs> Egon Sheely. Uh, so uh, thanks, Egon, for being here. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.